TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast. Uno, dos, one, two, tres, cuatro. Today's special is Memphis Soul Stew. I can't stand the rain. I'm a rep this here till I walk up on death down in Memphis. Yeah, Memphis, Tennessee. Memphis, Tennessee. 901 Shelby Drive, look alive, look alive. Down in the sweet old Memphis, Tennessee, y'all. Welcome to Memphis Musicology, the official podcast of the Memphis Rock and Soul Museum. I'm your host, Ezra Wheeler. Today on the show, we're going to be discussing some of the bars, saloons, and venues that played a crucial role in both incubating and developing the Memphis sound. Um, We're going to start in the early 20th century with the speakeasies and gambling parlors of Bill Street. Those bars, you know, really played a big role in providing shelter to the musicians, hustlers, rascals and the like that frequented the street during its heyday. We're going to end sometime pretty much 1970s, uh, to an extent in the modern day, but really in the 70s when traveling musicians, both big and small, would uh, find solace and inspiration in our city's ramshackle but real hole in the walls. So although there are literally dozens of uh, deserving spaces we could talk about, uh, and I'm thinking we will in a later episode, Today I'm going to focus on five unique yet intimately tied institutions. We're going to be talking about Pee Wee Saloon, the Palace Theater, the Plantation Inn, Club Paradise, and Ernestine and Hazel's. So we're going to kick things off with a little discussion of Pee Wee Saloon, uh, one of Beale Street's most famous classic era bars and one of the very few places that I think has a legitimate claim as a true birthplace of the blues. So Pee Wee Saloon was established by an Italian immigrant named Virgilio Maffei, who arrived in Memphis during the 1880s. In his uh, 1941 autobiography, none other than the father of the blues, W.C. Handy, called Maffei's arrival the beginning of the Beale Street era. So let me quote a bit from that book, from his autobiography. Quote, The saga of Beale Street, as I knew it, goes back to a bright summer morning in the 1880s. A freight train slowed down and came to a stop in North Memphis. Presently a ragged immigrant boy, a dark-browed Italian youngster called Pee-wee, crept out from under one of the boxcars. He had come all the way from New York on the, on the rods. For a moment, Pee-wee stood blinking in the sun. When the train pulled off again, the young hobo took his bearings and headed directly for the nearest water. On the banks of the Wolf River, he slipped off his miserable shirt and pants, plunged into the stream, and set about to remove the dust and soot and grime he had collected during the weeks spent in gutters and ditches and on the rods of boxcars, end quote. So W.C. Handy went on to say that Maffei, who I'm sure you picked up, was known as Pee-wee, eventually made his way to Bill Street, uh, where he wagered all of his money on a crap game, which was apparently only a dime, and won enough money to support himself for a few weeks as he began a new life on Bill Street. 
Quote, when I first visited the city as a boy, continued Handy, Pee-wee was running a saloon on the corner of Hernando and Beale. Later, Pee-wee moved to 317 and his place became a landmark and a legend. Moreover, it was a headquarters for musicians. Through Pee-wee's doors passed the heroic Darktown figures of an age that is now becoming fabulous. They range from cooks and waiters to professional gamblers, jockeys, and racetrack men of the period. Glittering young devils and silk toppers and Prince Alberts drifted in and out with insolent self-assurance. Chocolate dandies with red roses embroidered on cream waistcoats loitered at the door. It was perfectly natural that Pee-wee should become the headquarters for our band, for a time at least, and in the fall of 1909, I often used his cigar stand to write out copies of the following lyrics for visiting bands. Mr. Crump won't allow no easy rider here. Mr. Crump won't allow no easy rider here. We don't care what Mr. Crump don't allow. We go into the barrel house anyhow. Mr. Crump can go and catch himself some air. End quote. So as you may know, that song, which was initially known as Mr. Crump, a uh, tongue-in-cheek homage to the man who would eventually become Memphis's long-serving mayor, eventually became known as the Memphis Blues, which is really the, it was the first ever published blues song. So as Handy recalled, uh, quote, it set a new fashion in American popular music and contributed to the rise of jazz, or if you prefer, swing and even boogie-woogie. So as Handy noted, uh, Pee Wee's Saloon was not only his home base, but also a hangout for countless other Memphis musicians of the era. The bar apparently had a back room crammed full of instruments and also the city's one and only payphone. So musicians would hang around the saloon and wait on calls from prospective clients looking to book a band. And when that call came, they were ready to grab an instrument and hit the road. So as violinist Thomas Pinkston recalled, quote, they had a wine room back there where musicians used to go and drink wine with these cheap prostitutes, lay around and just wait for someone to call and hire them. So in fact, it was actually W.C. Handy who was often answering that phone, and he kind of acted as a de facto agent um, for that pool of musicians hanging around the bar at Pee Wee's, or as the case may be, in the wine room with the cheap hookers. But musicians were not the only ones who frequented Pee Wee's. Uh, like so many of the bars and clubs on Beale, Pee Wee's also housed illegal gambling in the back, which, as Mr. Handy told us, Mr. Crump didn't like. So to protect themselves from that long arm of the law, each club on Beale kind of had their own system of warning. And at Pee Wee's, that system involved a, a lookout who was placed out front with a hidden buzzer hidden under his shirt. So when the cop showed up, he just discreetly pressed the button, which would allow the boys in the back enough time to kind of clean up their game and, you know, escape out the back entrance. So around 1913, Pee-wee, uh, Mr. Maffei, he returned to Italy and he left Pee-wee's to two men, Lorenzo and Angelo Pacini, who were two brothers who kept the bar up and running um, in the family until 1941. So throughout that time, the Pacini brothers really retained the old spirit of Pee-wee's. They catered to an exclusively black audience and really maintained it as a haven for musicians. And actually, W.C. Handy would go on to dedicate his legendary 1914 song, St. Louis Blues, to the Pacini brothers, just kind of proving their importance. So in the early 1970s, the original building was torn down during that misguided era of urban renewal. And today, it's actually the site of the Tin Roof, right on the side of the FedEx Forum. So thankfully, the Tennessee Historical Society did place a marker outside of that bar reading Quote, Pee Wee Saloon was the favorite meeting spot for Memphis musicians in the early 20th century. 
W.C. Handy used his used the cigar counter to write out copies of the Bill Street Blues for his band members. Anyway, before we move on, I want to play a 1914 version of the Memphis Blues from a man named Morton Harvey, which is uh, it's actually the very first rendition of the song recorded with lyrics, and it's also the earliest known vocal record with the word blues in the title. So as you'll hear, the song has a pretty much very little in common with our modern conceptions of the blues, which is both a reflection of the time period it was made and also a result of the non-Memphis musicians playing on the record. So as the singer Morton Harvey recalled later, quote, although the orchestra that accompanied me was, a, was composed of symphonic players, it wasn't their fault that they didn't get a blues quality into the record. The blues style of singing and playing, which became so familiar later, was just about to be born. Even the dance records of the Memphis Blues made during that period were played as straight one steps. However, there were a few good old-fashioned trombone smears in the orchestral effect of my Memphis Blues record. So without further ado, here's Morton Harvey with his version of W.C. Handy's Memphis Blues written right there at Pee Wee Saloon. So the second venue that I want to talk about today is actually one that we touched on a bit back on our episode about Rufus Thomas, but I still think it warrants a deeper look. It also segues pretty nicely from Pee Wee Saloon because it was opened by the two Pacini brothers back in 1919. I'm talking, of course, about the Palace Theater, an old converted movie theater once located at 324 Beale, where uh, the regrettable Coyote Ugly now stands. Anyway, after its conversion, the Palace Theater became the South's largest venue for African Americans and was also a member of the Theater Owners and Bookers Association, which is important because it was a circuit of theaters that catered exclusively to black audiences, which meant that Memphis was now on the circuit for some of the biggest black musicians of the era. People like Bessie Smith, um, Ma Rainey, Duke Ellington, Count Basie, they all performed there in the 20s and 30s. So the Palace Theater's biggest cultural contribution, though, was probably its famed amateur nights, which ran from the 30s into the 50s. So in the 30s, Historian and teacher Nat D. Williams began hosting Amateur Night, um, and he had a young goofball as a sidekick named Rufus Thomas. So while Williams was the straight man, Rufus kind of acted as the comedic relief during the shows. So much like the Apollo Theater in Harlem years later, the crowd at the Palace Theater was notoriously volatile, and performers were routinely booed and heckled off stage. And in fact, Angelo Pacini, one of the owners, um, he took the role of the Lord High Executioner, and his whole gig was that he would shoot blanks at the failing axe from his pearl-handled revolver. Shoot him dead. Anyway, uh, in the 1940s, Rufus Thomas actually took over the MC job, and a man named Robert Bones Couch became the clown. 
And he would actually take out failing acts who got booed off. He would swing on a rope and yell like Tarzan, or he would come out with a long hook, which was, of course, a shtick that would be adopted by the Apollo Sandman a few years later. But of course, not everyone who participated at the Palace Theater's Amateur Night was met with these embarrassing endings. Um, There was always a winner, and these winners were determined by audience applause, and they were given anywhere between a dollar and five dollars as their prize. So over the years, the winner of the Palace Theater's Amateur Nights included future legends like B.B. King, Bobby Blue Bland, Johnny Ace, Isaac Hayes, and probably the only white boy with the balls to even compete, Mr. Elvis Presley. Speaking of, uh, speaking of white, <laughs> whites, another notable thing about the Palace Theater was the fact that it was actually the very, uh, one of the very, very few venues on Bill Street that would welcome white patrons, which it did during its Thursday night midnight rambles. So those midnight rambles were a white-only affair, um, although the entertainment remained pretty much the same as what you would get the other six days of the week. So over the years, white patrons at the Palace Theater, they were able to see shows from the likes of Louis Armstrong and Ella Fitzgerald, which was really pretty rare at that time. So one of the biggest draws for that predominantly, uh, well, all white, but predominantly male Thursday night crowds was the Palace Theater's chorus girls who were known uh, ineloquently as the brown skin models. little on the nose there. So the beautiful young African-American women would come out in their scanty attire and actually became pretty famous for the drama that they would cause um, for the fights that they would cause between the men and their jealous wives because apparently they were irresistible. So for many whites in the uh, Memphis area, the Palace Theater was really their only view into that wild world of Bill Street and the black culture that was happening, largely without their knowledge in a lot of cases. So for a little more about the importance of the Palace Theater, um, for both audiences and artists alike, let's listen to a clip of Rufus Thomas and B.B. King talking about their early days together at the Palace and the role that that venue played in both of their careers. Yeah, the palace was right there. Yeah. Right there. Yeah. And the back door of me that you, you used to come in. Don't say that now. Don't, don't say that now. You don't really don't want the people to know this. <laughs> well, that's all right. Go ahead. <laughs> the back door that you used to come in yeah. was about along, about along there. there. You used to come and stand there with the rest of the people trying to get on stage. Everybody's holding up the hand. I want to ask you a question. All right. right. I hate to cut you off there. Why did you take pity on me and let me in times when I wasn't supposed to be there? Now, I remember several times when they would have the amateur and like if I was on last week, I was not supposed to be back on this week. Why did you help me out? Well, B, I, I, I really don't know. I, I, I must must felt like you had something to offer the people. Did I look that bad? No, you just had talent. Of course, did you really look bad too, but that was the part. <laughs> but you really did. You, you, you had talent at that time. Some, uh, I saw an, uh, uh, an unforeseen ability. It was so different. I mean, your style even at that time was different. And I, I just saw it and I liked it. Well, I, I, I have to think it. I don't want to go too far in this, but I, I really have to think it because many times I've thought about it. Now, Bowlegs and his brother used to dance. They were, in fact, they were the best to me. That's right. Uh, they and Mick, they was a young, yeah, Mick. They was a young Rufus and Bones at that time because Bowlegs, him and his little brother, they could really do it. That's right. And 
I, I thought about it many times. For people that don't know about it, that dollar that you would get, because I lived in Orange Mound at that time, and if I got that dollar, I could come to work every day for that dollar because I could get ca uh, car fare. How much uh, was car fare at that time? I think car fare then was about uh, 12 cents. 10 nope. to Seven. Seven cents, right. Seven cents. So all a week I could come to work. But I know maybe it didn't do so much for the established musicians, but all of the would-be wannabe entertainers, the Palace Theater did a lot. And thanks to you as the MC, the master of ceremony at that time, you gave a lot of people confidence and you helped a whole lot of people. That's what made you a great guy today. Well, I'm not selfish. I'm You're not Because selfish. if I had been selfish, you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have got on that a second time in a row. <laughs> or the third time in a row. <laughs> so as B.B. King mentioned, uh, trumpeter Gene Bowlegs Miller was yet another one of the musicians who frequently played at the Palace Theater years before he became a real local legend for playing alongside everyone from Aretha Franklin to Otis Redding to Al Green. And because B.B. King says he was the best at the time, I guess I'm in no position to disagree. So for that reason, let's take a listen to Bowlegs Miller with his track, What Time You Got, which will give you a little taste of the sound of the Palace Theater back in the 1950s. about today was also a place frequented by Bowlegs Miller, although in a lot of ways it was a million miles away from the swinging scene of Bill Street. So the Plantation Inn was a large club and dance hall located across the river in West Memphis, Arkansas that became the unlikely breeding ground of uh, Memphis Soul back in the 1950s. So the Plantation Inn was opened by Morris Berger sometime in the 1940s, and by the early 50s, it was one of the area's biggest hotspots for live music. So because West Memphis at the time, well, even today, I guess, was a virtual wild, wild west, it became a huge draw for young whites who were allowed to enter the club underage, get boozed up, uh, listen to the authentic blues and R&B that was largely inaccessible to them in Memphis, and just 
have a good time away from parental eyes. So many of these young white musicians, folks like Packy Axton, Wayne Jackson, Steve Cropper, they all learned the ropes of black music at the Plantation Inn, and they would eventually take these skills to become integral parts of Stax Records in the following decade. So here's an interview with Memphis legend and producer Jim Dickinson talking about the impact that the Plantation Inn had, Inn had on him and the direct ties it had to the later formation of Stax Records. Well, the, West, the thing about West Memphis was the Plantation Inn, pure and simple. Uh, and it had been, I guess it had been running since the 40s. It was a roadhouse. It had been a gambling house before. And of course, again, this is utterly segregated. They had a black band that by the time I started going, Phineas Newburn Sr. Uh, had run a band there. Willie Mitchell had a band there for a while, but by the time I started going, it was Ben Branch and the Largos. Now, in that photograph, that Martin Luther King photograph, the guy pointing this Ben Branch, in the late 50s, early 60s, he was the uh, band leader at the Plantation Inn with Blind Oscar playing the organ, and Big Bell playing the drums, and uh, Guitar Friday, and they had this uh, almost transvestite singer named Wild Charlie, uh, Tennessee Turner. They called him Tennessee Turner on this side of the, on the, the Tennessee side of the river, and Wild Charlie in Arkansas. And everybody my age in Memphis copied Wild Charlie. Uh, and the Del Rios was the vocal group. And again, every every band my age and a little younger did their version of Stormy Weather. I mean, you weren't from Memphis if you couldn't play Stormy Weather, you know. And the the concept of the band, though, was like two horn players, you know, and, and a rhythm section. Like thin, back then, a thin horn section. And that's that's the Memphis sound. That's where it all came from. But everybody, see, Wayne Jackson, the trumpet player in the Marquis and the Memphis Horns, was from West Memphis. And, you know, all of the frat boys, for sure. I mean, that was that was the place you went, you know, because you could get in for one reason. The older I get, the more respect I have for Jim Stewart. That being said, Jim Stewart was a hillbilly violin player, or fiddle player, more specifically, and a uh, bank teller. If you ever met Jim Stewart or Estelle Axton, taking nothing away from either one of them, I think it would be easy to see that probably the last thing they would think of was recording black music. It was not their idea. It was Packy's idea, uh, Estelle's son, who was the erstwhile leader of the Marquise, the saxophone player. And he had learned to play saxophone from Gilbert Caples, who played saxophone at the Plantation Inn. It's really that simple. And Packy just brought the music across the river. And it was him, nobody else. So in case that was unclear that Jim Stewart and Estelle Axton were the brother and sister duo who opened up Stax Records, Packy was um, Estelle's son and a frequenter of the Plantation Inn who was pretty much the one who, according to Jim Dickinson, you know, was influenced by there, went back to his mother and uncle and said this is the music you should be recording and fast forward it's one of the greatest periods in memphis music history 
Anyway, as uh, Jim Dickinson also noted, the Plantation Inn was the home base for several legendary black Memphis musicians, beginning with the Newborn family. Um, the Phineas Newborn Orchestra was the venue's original house band, and they really specialized in a more sophisticated jazz, although they would let loose from time to time later on at night. So that family group included guitarist Calvin Newborn, who would go on to inspire the playing and dance moves of Elvis, and he would also uh, be the one who teach Ike Turner to play the guitar. And his brother Phineas Newborn Jr., who would go on to become an international jazz sensation and really one of the most respected jazz pianists in history. But back then, they were just two young men trying to make a living in their father's group. So as Calvin recalled, uh, Calvin Newborn recalled in Robert Gordon's book, It Came From Memphis, quote, my brother had been in high school a year and I was a grade behind him. It was pretty tough, even for teenagers, going to school every day and playing from nine until two at night. But I did enjoy it. It was hard for me to stay still and play. I was, used, I was used to doing, like them basketball stars, flying. I'd get about six feet in the air playing that guitar. As a matter of fact, I used to think I could fly. So when Calvin and Phineas Jr. left the Plantation Inn to join B.B. King and Ike Turner on the road, it was band leader Willie Mitchell and his Four Kings turn to take over. And they drew huge crowds with their uh, thumping, horn-led R&B Willie Mitchell, of course, would go on to become a celebrated trumpeter and the genius behind High Records, which, of course, produced all those great outputs from Al Green and Peebles, O.V. Wright, on and on. But it all started right there in West Memphis at the Plantation Inn. So along with Mitchell, uh, as Dickinson also noted, band leader Ben Branch and also Bowlegs Miller, they also tore down the house and inspired an entire generation of future superstars as band leaders at the Plantation Inn. And as uh, I'm going to quote future Memphis horn saxophonist Andrew Love, who said, the stack sound was just a Memphis sound, and Ben Branch and Bowleg Miller were two of the most popular band leaders in town. So his partner in the Memphis horns, Wayne Jackson, he also touted the influence of the Plantation Inn, saying, when I was a kid, I always heard about the Plantation Inn. It was one of those places the adults went. Then, as time went by and we became teenagers, we would go and sit and listen to the bands and the singing. They'd serve us a beer and look the other way. We thought we were big time. But we got to hear what was being played and fall in love with the music. So another future Stax legend who got to start at the P.I. was a young Isaac Hayes, who uh, actually served as a pianist for Floyd Newman, yet another one of the popular band leaders at the club. But, um... Not all of the music at the Plantation Inn was these hot instrumentals, although that did make up the majority of it. The club also featured a vocal group called the Del Rios, uh, which featured future soul legend William Bell, who, of course, became famous later on for songs like I Forgot to Be Your Lover, um, as a singer with Stax Records. So as William Bell recalled, quote, The first song that I wrote was when I was with the Del Rios. I was like 14 years old, but I was always putting thoughts down on paper. We worked, we worked over at this place called the Plantation Inn. Man, it was really wild over there. There was some scene in the Blues Brother movie when they had chicken wire across the front of the stage, and it was like that. But we had some good times. So unfortunately, those good times came to a tragic end in 1960 when a young teenage girl was killed by her boyfriend who actually beat her to death with a branch, I think over some jealousy. And when they found her, her hand was stamped with the plantation in name. And needless to say, the club did not last long after that. Anyway, but the 
despite that that sad ending to the club, it really had already laid down the groundwork for that sound that would come on to, you know, define the next two decades of Memphis music. Anyway, a bit of fun trivia. When the Plantation Inn closed down, the Berger family, you know, wanted to replace it, and they chose to replace it with a little Mexican restaurant, which became known as Poncho's. Of course, that Memphis institution that is still around, and I think that original Poncho's is still over there in West Memphis. Anyway, before we move on, let's take a listen to a song from Plantation Inn legend Willie Mitchell and his band, The Four Kings. This is their 1958 track, Tell It To Me Baby, which features Don Bryant on the vocals. So the next two venues I want to talk about were both owned and operated by a character named Andrew Sunbeam Mitchell and his wife Ernestine. So Sunbeam Mitchell was a major figure in the so-called Chitlin Circuit, which was that informal network of clubs and bars that, you know, tried to provide a safe place for black musicians, performers, and comedians to perform in during the era of racial segregation, particularly between the 1940s and 60s. So over the years, Sunbeam operated several clubs um, on the Chitlin circuit, including both Club Handy and Club Ebony on Beale Street, both of which really were hugely influential and worthy of their own segments. But today I want to focus on Sunbeam's Club Paradise, which opened its doors in 1962, really in the beginning of Beale Street's demise. So as Sunbeam recalled in 1975, quote, they were getting ready to tear things down on Beale Street. Urban renewal was coming, but we had Club Paradise before they even started that urban renewal shit. So the club, which was located at 645 Georgia Avenue, was billed as the South's leading night spot. Um, Sunbeam was his role as a prominent businessman, and he also had access to the city's political machine, really made him a powerful figure within the black community at the time. And over the next 20 years, Club Paradise booked virtually every blues, soul, or R&B performer to come through town. So legendary bluesman Bobby Rush, who played at Club Paradise several times throughout the year, recalled, This was heaven to me, man. I tell you, at that time, if you played the Paradise, that was the ultimate in Memphis of the Black Blues Club. When you made the Paradise, it was like Carnegie Hall. You had to, wake your, you had to work your way up to get to the Paradise, but when you got there, you thought you'd made it. So according to those who knew him, Sunbeam could be a bit of a gruff figure. Um, one friend described him as a different character from a lot of people, explaining that, quote, he was like that because he had a lot of power back in the day. And Bobby Rush agreed, saying he had power in a big pistol. If, he, if you didn't agree to his demands, you had to walk out the door. 
At the same time, though, everyone also agreed that Sunbeam was really genuinely concerned about his artist, um, or the artist who came through the city, and was really extremely generous with both his time and his resources. So back in the 50s, he had helped boost the early careers of folks like B.B. King and Little Richard, giving them um, cheap housing, free food, um, really just kind of helped them out when they were down on their luck. Anyway, over the years, Club Paradise featured performances from, and this is just a partial list I could find, but impressive nonetheless, Club Paradise featured Ike and Tina Turner, Count Basie, Little Richard, Johnny Taylor, Aretha Franklin, Chuck Berry, Ray Charles, Muddy Waters, Funkadelic, Sam and Dave, The Temptations, and on and on and on. So in the 60s, it really was the place to see black music. And although the club was quite large, I think it had somewhere like 4,000 seats, it was also fairly intimate. So apparently there was a catwalk that ran through the club and Patrons could kind of line the catwalk and have the opportunity to get up and close and personal with the musicians, you know, touch their hands. And oftentimes, even famous musicians themselves would come out to hang at the Paradise, uh, especially the artists at nearby Stax Records. So as Barquet's member James Alexander recalled, quote, The artists that recorded at Stax always liked to go out when they weren't performing. They liked to hang out, and Club Paradise was the place they used to go. So filmmaker George Tillman, who is actually currently working on a documentary about the club, he said, everyone went to the paradise back then. It was home to us. It was truly a community center, and it represented kind of the ultimate for black entertainers. However, they also had a lot of civil rights and other activities there. It wasn't strictly a music venue, though that's primarily what it was. I just want younger generations to know about the club paradise and what it meant for the black community in Memphis and its important importance as part of the rise of soul music nationally and internationally. So by the 1980s, however, the forces of segregation that had really uh, necessitated the Chitlin circuit were no longer strong enough to really keep things going as strong and business eventually slowed down to a crawl. So in 1985, Sunbeam sold the venue to a man named Paul Jordan, who ran the club up until its final days in 1999. Quite appropriately, it was Mr. Bobby Rush who played the venue's final show, bringing an end to that particular era. So before we move on with part two of our story about Sunbeam, let's take a quick break to hear a track from Mr. Bobby Rush, who remains an active participant on what remains of the Chitlin circuit. He was actually uh, was in town recently playing at the recently reopened. It's not quite the same, but they're trying to revive the... Um, Club Paradise, and he played there, I think, last month. Anyway, this is Bobby Rush with his excellent 1971 song, Chicken Heads. Daddy told me on his dying bed Give up your heart, but don't you lose your head You come along, girl, what did I do? I lost my heart and my head went to Little girl, little girl, you sure can cook Little girl, little girl, you got me When you cook that chicken, say me to head I should be working, but I'm home in bed Thank you, 
Lord, I'm chicken heads now. Without your love, I just can't go on. Caught the feeling I have for you, cause much too strong. Let me in, let me in, let me in, let me so his son Beam was overseeing Club Paradise. His wife Ernestine, along with her cousin Hazel Jones, they were running a beauty salon right around the corner at 351 South Main Street. So the Ernestine and Hazel had received the building from multi-millionaire businessman and philanthropist Abe Plow, who had made a considerable fortune as the owner of Coppertone Suntan Lotions, and I guess part of his philanthropy was gifting the building to those two women. So they, uh, they set up their salon on the second floor and then quickly set about establishing a jazz cafe downstairs that, according to an old menu, specialized in hog malls, catfish, and neck bones. So the remaining rooms upstairs uh, that were not used for their, for their salon were rented out to ladies of the night. So they had a hair salon, a brothel, and a jazz club. Three in one. So because that building was only a few blocks from Club Paradise, it really became kind of the unofficial after-hours joint for performers looking for, you know, a warm meal or a cold drink or a hot date. And over the years, the building housed everyone from Wilson Pickett to Ray Charles, who uh, supposedly frequented the bar so often that he actually had a personal piano installed that it's actually still upstairs at Ernestine and Hazel's. So anyway, another pair of visitors during that time were Keith Richards and Mick Jagger, who were so stirred by the bar and its women that it inspired them to write Brown Sugar and Honky Tonk Women. Um, at least that's what, how the story goes. Anyway, as the 60s slowly faded and downtown Memphis fell into ruin, Ernestine and Hazel's actually quietly kept chugging along as the neighborhood around them emptied out. But by the early 90s, things were finally starting to look bleak. Um, Sunbeam had passed away. Ernestine and Hazel were, you know, in their later years, their twilight years, and the crowds were dwindling, really largely because there was a brothel upstairs. and People in the 90s weren't too used to that. So uh, at this point, we enter a man named Russell George. So George was uh, the type of white boy that only comes out of Memphis, which I think is illustrated perfectly by the fact that he won a James Brown dancing competition at the age of 10, which was chosen by the godfather of soul himself. Um, anyway, when George he first surveyed the bar in 1992, said that he really knew that he could recapture the spirit and soul of the bar's heyday and really went about promptly purchasing it and changed very little, at least about the, the whole feng shui of the place. So here's a quick clip of George uh, Russell George talking about those early days. Came down here in 92. Most of it was all boarded up down here. The train station was completely closed up just about except for one little station to catch it. two trains a, week, a day. Ernestine and Hazel had had it since the 50s. And it was it was run as a soul cafe down here in Beer John. This was the neck bone capital of the world here. But I got to be pretty close with Ernestine. And after she got to meet me, I think she gave me the... Uh, Approval that you'd be the right guy to run to take it over. So years prior to purchasing ENH, uh, decades before actually, back in the 1960s, a then 15-year-old George had opened an illicit speakeasy out of an, out of his apartment, which he called Jefferson in the Rear. And a few years later, he helped open Murphy's on Madison Avenue, and he also served as the 
band manager for the soul group, the Memphis Icebreakers. So did have a bit of uh, experience in both music and running clubs. If you can, I guess Murphy's is legit. I don't know about a bar run out of your home, but I like it. I like it. Anyway, after kicking out the remaining bo- uh, brothel dwellers, George reopened Ernestine and Hazel's on St. Patrick's Day in 1993. And from that point on, the bars really remained a Memphis institution and one of the best places to catch blues, jazz, and R&B, both live and from their legendary jukebox. Next, just a quick note, the White Stripes actually played an impromptu show there in 2001, which I still hear people talk about. Anyway, the, the bar's well-worn walls are covered with photos of legends who have passed through its doors, and they also actually also have a signage from the old club paradise so if you find yourself at ernestine and hazel's look on the walls you'll see some things that say cp all around the walls that is all old memorabilia from club paradise anyway according to those who've worked there the old bar is also said to have ghosts including the spirit of ernestine mitchell who is said to randomly play songs from the jukebox so after about 20 years of managing the legendary bar russell george uh on one hot summer night, went upstairs to his office, closed the door, and took his own life, which they say made him the 13th person to die inside of those old walls. Anyway, uh, despite that tragedy, Ernestine and Hazel's thankfully lives on and remains one of the city's dirty jewels, probably my favorite bar in the town. Anyway, before we, uh, before we wrap up, let's take a quick listen to the Rolling Stones' Honky Tonk Women an ode to the gin-soaked barroom queens in Memphis. survey of some of the city's most important and legendary bars. Like I said at the top, there are plenty of other bars and venues to cover, from the old Lafayette's to the Antenna Club, so keep your eyes open for a follow-up in the coming weeks or months. I would like to cover the ones we didn't. Anyway, before we head over to the Mud Island Mixtape, I want to take a moment to thank the good folks at Arts Memphis and the Genium Foundation for their support of the show. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Memphis Musicology on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcast. Also, a quick little uh, self-promoting note. Voting begins for the Memphis Flyers Best of Memphis on August 1st, so if you'd be so kind, please take a moment to vote for us in the Best Podcast category. 
Alrighty, with all of that out of the way, let's jump on the monorail and head over to the head over to Mud Island, where we go each week to add yet another song to the Mud Island mixtape. So today on the Mud Island mixtape, I want to play a song from the legendary Memphis band, the Marquis. Uh, the Marquis, as you may know, were the first house band at Stax Records and included future legends like Steve Cropper and Duck Dunn of Booker T and the MGs, Wayne Jackson of the Memphis Horns, Howard, Howard Grimes of the High Rhythm Section, and really many, many others. Almost everyone who was part of that band became a really important figure in Memphis music. Anyway, uh, one of those members was Packy Axton, guy we talked about earlier, the son of Stax co-founder Estelle Axton. And the kid that uh, Jim Dickinson and many others credited with inspiring Stax's move to become a soul label, who was the band's saxophonist. So as I mentioned earlier, many of the musicians who were first exposed to the sounds of Southern R&B at the at Plantation Inn um, went on to, you know, be integral figures at Stax. So it should come as no surprise that the group, uh, the group released an ode to the West Memphis Bar back in 1966 called... Appropriately enough, the Plantation Inn. So this will be the, actually the second song from the group on the mixtape, as their uh, song last night was actually our very first entry. Anyway, enjoy, and I'll catch y'all soon. If you need me, I'll probably be having a soul burger at ENH. Without further ado, this is the Marquis with their song, The Plantation Inn.
TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast.